The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I'm Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for July 22, 2023. This week, the New York Times released an article detailing how Trump and his allies plan to restructure and expand presidential power in 2025 should the former president be elected again. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from November 18, 2020, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Susan Hennessy, Scott R. Anderson, and Rudy Merboni to discuss Trump's expansion of his influence and executive power at the end of his administration, including his installment of loyalists and an executive order making it easier for the executive branch to hire and fire people in agencies. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, 2020. The president in the waning days of his administration has attempted to install a political loyalist as general counsel of the National Security Agency, a position that is traditionally a merits position, not a political position. He has also issued an executive order that gives the executive branch greater control over the civil service, making it easier to hire and fire people in agencies. It all raises the question, is Donald Trump attempting to create the very deep state that he has spent the last four years denouncing? To talk over this question in its various permutations, we got together in the virtual jungle studio, Susan Hennessy, whose recent article about the NSA general counsel appointment has been getting a lot of attention Scott Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor, and Rudy Merbani, Senior Advisor at Democracy Fund Voice, Senior Fellow at the Brennan Center, and former Director of the Office of Presidential Personnel and Associate Counsel to the President in the Obama White House. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th. Is Trump Creating a Deep State? Scott, get us started with an overview here. It seems to me that the president has issued an executive order that has a lot of people concerned that that implicates some civil service issues. He has also 
attempted to install somebody who is not obviously qualified for the position as general counsel at NSA, which raises certain similar set of issues. Give us an overview of the personnel concerns that give rise to this conversation. Well, really, over the last couple of weeks, we have seen this kind of escalation of different sorts of personnel activities on the part of the Trump administration. Prior to the election, we saw the issuance of this executive order uh, that you mentioned, which essentially creates a new category of employee in what's called the accepted service, which is that universe of federal employees that aren't subject to the same normal restrictions on removal and other sorts of tenure type arrangements that'll ensure their job stability and security, including against a potential sort of either patronage appointments or politically motivated appointments and removals. It helps insulate against that. We've also seen uh, a number of removals and appointments since the election, a number of high level removals from the Defense Department that's gotten a lot of attention. We've discussed previously on the podcast and a few other agencies, including USAID, um, National Nuclear Security Administration, and also this appointment of a, someone, uh, Michael Ellis, from previous at the National Security Council and other parts in government seen as a Trump loyalist in at the National Security Agency in a kind of maybe not unique, but relatively unusual sort of career arrangement there that we can get more into. I know Susan has, has written on to elaborate. Really, the the takeaway picture, though, is that this is kind of the culmination of a little bit of a campaign that's always been part of the Trump administration's rhetoric and that they've taken steps towards in the past. And that is this idea of reforming the civil service. The Trump administration has always viewed government service and government employees as in the worst light as a deep state, as a kind of independent cohort of individuals who have their own political views that happen to be contrary to the president's at different times were seen as actively working to undermine him. And even where they weren't actively part of the kind of deep state conspiracy side uh, of the equation, they often bought into and kind of echoed longstanding criticisms of the civil service saying that uh, federal employees are too hard to remove, they're not held accountable enough, and there needs to be ways to fix that. And riding along that line, we've seen them take a number of personnel actions, not just these most recent ones, but even a few years back, you know, installing greater uh, executive control over the appointment of administrative law judges, more recently changing policies around how you try and educate federal employees around uh, diversity issues, different sorts of training programs. And there, so there really is this sort of effort to change the shape and the face of the civil service as it stands, and perhaps to make that more of an enduring legacy of the Trump administration as it prepares to leave office. So Trump has long as you say, complained of a deep state. But number one, if you strengthen the executive control over the civil service right now, you're not actually advantaging Donald Trump against the deep state. You're advantaging Joe Biden and his ability to control things. Moreover, some of the steps that they've taken recently seem to me a little bit more like efforts to create a deep state that is a kind of burrowing in of loyalists in career positions than it is a effort to strengthen executive control over the civil service. So Rudy, help me out here. What is the broad concern that you have as you watch the Trump administration's 
conduct with respect to the civil service over the last few months? Well, look, I think that you highlight something that has been a concern even before the most recent executive order was adopted. And this pertains to Donald Trump trying to undermine the ability of the executive branch agencies to function based upon their expertise and professionalism, uh, even in a future Biden administration. And I think that the executive order is causing significant concern, in part because of the unknown questions surrounding it. So as you might know, Ben, this concern around burrowing is one that arises toward the end of almost every administration. And because of it, Congress has actually required the Office of Personnel Management, which is the primary HR agency, essentially, for the federal government, to conduct a review of conversions that take place or movements from a political position into a career competitive position to ensure that those individuals are qualified and to make a report available to Congress of any such conversions that take place. It's notable to mention that the most recent report, at least last that I checked on it, had still not been made available to Congress. And part of the the concern here is that you will have specific actors who are working to thwart the intentions of a future administration. I think it's also notable that the actions that are being taken right now, possibly under this new executive order toward the civil service, they, they are another step in the ways the current administration has attacked personnel, even when it comes to political appointees and the political appointments process throughout the administration. I mean, I know that you have talked about this with other guests on your podcast, and it has been written about ad nauseum uh, of the ways that the Trump administration has abused federal laws that pertain to the designation and appointment of acting officials under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, his insistence and refusal to appoint uh, and nominate permanent officials to, to vacant positions, And in other tactics that we've seen from his presidential personnel office and the current director of the presidential personnel office to essentially root out any political appointee, regardless of how they have performed, if they are not seen as sufficiently loyal to the Trump administration. So the the concerns are significant and will have to be grappled with if this current executive order is implemented in the way that is of most concern to the experts that have looked at it. All right, let's talk about the executive order in a moment. But first, I want to talk about the burrowing effect. Susan, the office in which you served for uh, several years appears to now be the province of Michael Ellis, who got out of law school a year or two before you did and has spent the subsequent time uh, working for Congressman Nunes and for the National Security Council. So first of all, I want to ask you, are you qualified to run the office of general counsel at NSA? 
And is Michael Ellis any more qualified for that position than you are? You know, I will um, reserve for the moment the question of whether or not I uh, possess such extraordinary qualifications as to be uh, ready to serve in that role uh, at my obviously very young age. Uh, you know, look, the question about Ellis is is not just one of uh, sort of his lack of qualifications. Um, it's really his lack of qualifications compared to the other two individuals uh, reportedly who were considered in the process, uh, Brad Brooker and Tisha Anthony, uh, both highly respected, uh, long-serving attorneys in the intelligence community um, who are manifestly more qualified and are manifestly more qualified than me, certainly. And that raises eyebrows because it appears that a process that is designed to avoid political interference has somewhat perplexingly selected the candidate who objectively has the least amount of experience. And also that the process, uh, there are indications of a lot of irregularities um, that suggest that actually that process didn't function in the manner that it was supposed to. So Rudy mentioned uh, that one sort of feature of these senior executive roles is OPM uh, has oversight, right, in order to sort of prevent this phenomenon of burrowing or improper conversion. The NSA general counsel position uh, falls in a little bit of a different category of regulations, and that's basically that uh, for senior executive career officials in the Defense Department and the intelligence community, they don't want to have to go through OPM review, right? There are uh, sort of specific national security sensitivities, uh, difficulty in being able to share particular types of information related to background or qualifications. Um, and so there is uh, uh, basically the ability in Title 10 for the Secretary of Defense to create kind of his own category of, of accepted service, but it's supposed to look like uh, like the, the category that we've been talking about, the sort of ordinary OPM, you know, Federal Bureaucracy SES service. And so this process by which Ellis has been selected, it's really, really difficult to understand precisely all the, the applicable regulations and rules because the Defense Department is just a, a very difficult, non-transparent organization in this sense. Um, but we can say that reports in both the New York Times and the Washington Post, the White House picked up the phone and called the Defense Department to pressure the DOD General Counsel and potentially the Selection Board into either including Ellis on the list in the first place, uh, or that he was their preferred candidate and actually picking him. That's not supposed to happen. That's against the rules. And it's especially important that we, we want the rules to be observed with jobs like this and this job in particular, because the NSA general counsel's job is one that it sort of, it, it lives right on the, the edge, right? So um, whatever we think about sort of political accountability, we want the cabinet level to be politically responsive to the White House, confirmed with advice and consent of the Senate. We want political appointees to be responsive to the, the policy priorities of the White House. Um, and we want this career senior executive service. And the NSA general counsel um, is one that could kind of go either way. There are really good arguments on either side why ugh, we really want this to be in the sort of the, the, the senior executive service because we don't want political considerations. We don't want political considerations in hiring. Uh, we don't want political considerations 
considerations in the way that the individual discharges the essential functions of the office. We want to prevent the kind of turnover that might happen every four or eight years or, or, or even on a shorter timeline that's sort of typical of uh, political appointments. Um, that said, it's a really important position. I mean, it's, it's a position that plays an, an important policy role. And, and it's a position that there's good arguments that uh, it does require the type of oversight that comes with uh, the advice and consent of the Senate and requiring it that it be a confirmed position. And the real fear right now is that the Trump administration is sort of capitalizing on a loophole. Um, the NSA general counsel's position is both not Senate confirmed, um, and they are also uh, potentially sort of distorting or circumventing the apolitical merit selection process in order to sort of entrench this person, either um, to give him a job in the long term, right? These are people who are going to be out of work as of January 20th at noon. Uh, the, the Trump administration officials might have a more difficult time finding private sector work than the prior uh, administration staffers have. And, and two, and even more alarmingly, um, you know, that it might be burrowing as an attempt to sort of entrench a particular ideological viewpoint um, or entrench uh, an individual in a position who might have uh, loyalties to particular parties on Capitol Hill might serve as sort of a back channel. And, and that's sort of where we get to sort of uh, the types of burrowing that, that isn't just about violations of ethics rules, but actually really, really corrupt uh, the ability of agencies to function, the ability of the civil service to function in ways that, that, are, that are pretty corrosive and alarming. All right. So let's talk about the executive order. Scott, to what extent does the executive order raise the same set of concerns? And to what extent does it raise the reciprocal set of concerns, which is too much executive control over the civil service? It really uh, does both. It has both a, a a removal concern and a burrowing concern. So let's let's walk through that. What precisely does it do, and how can it raise both concerns at the same time? So essentially, what the executive order does is it directs each agency head to review a whole list of positions within their agency uh, for consideration as to whether they are of a policy advocating or a policy making sort of role. There's a specific key set of language there, which is language that's cued to certain statutory authorities the president has to say, well, if these positions are of a policy advocating or policy making type, confidential type positions, then I can make them part of the accepted service, not part of the usual competitive service, which lowers certain types of protections, limits, uh, provides more flexibility in hiring, to some degree, more flexibility in removal. And that's usually done for various certain types of specialized positions, and most notably what are often called Schedule C off of another schedule in this accepted service positions, which are kind of lower ranking political appointment positions that are I think the majority probably of political appointed positions, I'm actually not sure exactly where the ratio breaks down, but most of the kind of special assistant type, senior advisor type positions are likely to be Schedule C positions. This would create a new list called Schedule F, um, which they describe, the executive order describes as positions that are of this policymaking, policy advocating, confidential character, um, but that do not usually transition or do not usually change hands during a political transition or presidential transition, distinguishing them from Schedule C, where they do usually transition. They are expressly and intended to be political appointee positions. What this does is by categorizing 
these positions with this particular label, this policy advocating label, it triggers a number of statutory hooks that basically say, okay, usually when you're removing a federal employee, there's a probationary period, there's a certain process you have to go through to uh, remove them, to punish them, to take any sorts of actions. That is waived now for this particular type of position, bringing a lot more freedom. There's another provision that lays out certain types of prohibited personnel practices, of which many of them may be, are, are waived by the sort of statutory invocation of this hook. Although it's worth noting, the executive order actually says this broad list still should apply to people on Schedule F, but it's going to do so through some new regulatory process that has to be developed. It's not going to be necessarily straightforward through the statutory action. It's a little bit ambiguous there, but that appears to be, um, at least from, from an OPM guidance letter that came later, how they're interpreting it. So it provides some more freedom uh, once you transition these positions to allow the president to uh, certainly appoint people more easily, fill the positions in a similar manner as political appointments, and then it might provide some degree to remove them. Uh, It certainly does on paper. In practice, though, especially if they're serious about leaving in some of these prohibited personnel practices, I think if you talk, talk to various people, they're not 100% sure how much it lowers the bar for removal for people who are actually in that Schedule F position, because there are still going to be a variety of ways that they can challenge that removal on the basis of those prohibited personnel practices once that process is in place, if it's implemented kind of in good faith. That's something we're waiting to see. The removal concern really comes in with, well, these are all existing positions, many of which, most of which, if not all of which, have people in them currently. So what happens to those people when they convert from a career position to the Schedule F position? Um, and I don't think there's real clear game plan for that. Uh, we haven't seen had the White House come out and sell us, here's what we're going to do. The executive order doesn't say it either. It's a possibility that all those people will be provided the opportunity to stay in their role and just kind of re-sign as a Schedule F person, as opposed to career person, but that does mean giving up certain types of job protections. Um, and certainly the kind of more conventional model of civil service job protections that's available. Uh, Or it could be that the administration intends to essentially say, nope, all you guys, your position just went away the same way as if Congress cut the budget and we had to cut positions, in which case all those people would have certain entitlements to preference in rehiring, opportunities to to bid for other jobs in their sort of agency. But in effect, especially if it affects a lot of people at once, it at a minimum is going to create a lot of chaos, uh, a lot of heartache for people in those positions especially, again, if they're not provided the opportunity to stay in their jobs and just convert to Schedule F. Many of them may choose to convert to Schedule F for that reason, although it may not be the choice that they would ideally pursue otherwise. Once you're in Schedule F, there's this question as to, well, can this be used to facilitate burrowing in? Because essentially what it says is, okay, we're going to allow the president to appoint people with a lot more flexibility and put them in these positions. But these positions, as a matter of the descriptor, are not intended to change over as a strictly political type position. And again, they are still protected by these prohibited personnel practices, um, which includes removing people for strictly their political views. So that could, in theory, mean that if uh, the Trump administration moves forward and fills a bunch of these new Schedule F positions with loyalists for them, it could be difficult or at least be cumbersome for the Biden administration to really effectively remove them. Although it may just be a matter of of time and effort as opposed to just making it categorically impossible. They would essentially have to, first, if the Trump administration doesn't develop a process for actually doing so, again, that's left open in the executive order, and then say, okay, here's the kind of administrative case for why these people aren't qualified for this position or otherwise aren't appropriately suited. 
and we're going to go through this process of removing them, but make clear that we're not discriminating against them for their political views or anything like that, that would be subject to maybe these prohibited personnel practices. Uh, again, that could cause a problem. Like There may be, it seems like there could be or should be a ways for the administration to do that, um, but it's just going to take time and a lot of work, both to set up the process and then implement it. And it's just a lot of political risk involved. It's going to look, or at least has the potential to look like a sort of political uh, witch hunt, which the enemies of the Biden administration or you know ex-Trump administration people are going to be able to have a field day and say, look, they're doing exactly um, what they criticize us doing. They're, they're r- ripping out all these people uh, and removing them summarily. It could lead to litigation and legal challenges. Um, that just has the potential to be a, a headache to be coming in. And so that's, that's how this ends up being that double-edged sword. The one thing I'll say uh, that I think is worth bearing in mind is, you know, not only does being moved to Schedule F or people being put Schedule F, it doesn't necessarily, at least on the face of the executive order, remove all of the sort of protections, um, again, because there are still these prohibited personnel practices that apply, although we don't know exactly how. There's also still constitutional protections for these people. The, the language that is linked to these different statutory waivers, this, this policymaking language or descriptor, actually comes from the Supreme Court. And specifically from a line of Supreme Court cases, going back to, I think, L. Rod B. Burns, I think was the first one, which basically establishes First Amendment protections for civil servants. And they say essentially, well, people who are in these sort of policy advocating, policy making, confidential positions, which are usually means political appointees with a fairly high degree of discretion, whose job it is to reflect the views of the political principle and implement them, they can be removed for virtue of their beliefs because that's the whole point of having political appointees. You have to have people in some of these roles that can channel the beliefs of the elected political official. But other civil servants who aren't in that sort of role, they're the protected ones. And just because the president changes that descriptor in terms of the statutory hook doesn't mean that he's actually aligning those people properly with the First Amendment jurisprudence and the case law around those sorts of First Amendment protections, meaning that somebody who is put in a Schedule F position and is then removed for different political views even if they make a case on the administrative record or or perhaps they amend the executive order to say, oh, well, the political views, prohibited personnel protection doesn't really apply here. They may still have First Amendment protections and say, no, the Supreme Court, when it used this descriptor, it meant something with a lot more discretion and authority, much closer to the political appointee and the political principle. Not me. I'm just a civil servant and I should still have my First Amendment rights. And so it could be opening up a whole door to an array of legal challenges separate and apart from how they decide to implement and kind of emulate the whatever parts of the previous legal protections that are usually in place for federal employees. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, Rudy, when you look at this executive order, how much progress has there been positive or negative in implementing it since it came down? What prevents, in other words, Joe Biden from coming in 64 days from now and simply rescinding it and making the whole thing go away? So let me let me just say quick, Ben, in response, j- just because I think that Scott provided some reassurance to those who are concerned that they will be impacted by this executive order, that there are some legal remedies available to them. That said, I do not think you can underestimate the impact that this executive order is having on the morale and the concerns of career civil servants who could be impacted by it. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I was the general counsel of a small agency. I worked at another cabinet level agency. And if we were to move career officials from one office to to another, I mean, that's probably a bad example since we're in the midst of a pandemic and everyone's working from home. But if you were to change someone's portfolio or discuss changing someone's portfolio, that would cause uh, significant issues and concerns. So you can imagine that when you're talking about removing someone's rights and removal rights, potentially are weakening them, the kind of anxieties and consequences that could result from that. But to, to answer your specific question, thus far, I do not think we have seen explicit public progress on implementing the executive order in a way that is creating a lot of heartburn uh, and concern, as as Scott so well outlined by those of us who are paying close attention to personnel issues within the federal government. There is an expectation that rules would have to be promulgated to implement the executive order and to begin converting positions to uh, Schedule F. There are some folks who are hearing from unnamed sources within government that the Trump administration might try to move forward without those rules being promulgated. I think that would be difficult, if not impossible. You know, it, it, it actually might be the case that this executive order was adopted in the hopes of being implemented in a second term rather than being implemented solely to sabotage the the Biden administration. Now, to the other part of your question about what could be done to roll this back, I think that depends on how far the Trump administration gets in actually implementing the order. If they are successful in converting some positions and then hiring new people into those positions in the Schedule F, then I don't think that a President Biden could come in and with one fell swoop, sign an executive order that simply rescinds President Trump's executive order because you will now have a new class of employees who will be entitled to certain rights and privileges that you'll need to deal with. So you will likely need some legislation to handle those employees. And there is, it's worth saying, there is some legislation that is pending in the House right now that would prohibit the president from using any appropriated dollars toward the creation of schedule F positions you know if 
the Trump administration moves forward with burrowing by putting political appointees into Schedule F positions, then I do think, as Scott outlined, this will be a headache for the Biden team. It could result in litigation by any of those Schedule F appointees who try to make a claim that their removal is not justified. And that litigation, as you and probably a substantial number of your listeners know, does not move swiftly. And so this could be a a pretty significant obstacle. Susan, to what extent is the Michael Ellis issue and the Schedule F slash executive order the same issue? To what extent are they different? Yeah, so they are the same issue when we think about sort of the animating values that underlie these various systems and designations. Um, and they're the same issue when we talk about or think about sort of the, the core of the issue that President-elect Biden faces when he assumes office, which is both that he has to remediate a lot of this stuff, uh, root out people who were burrowed, depoliticize positions that became politicized. Um, so he has sort of that restoration project. And at the same time, he has to restore uh, civil service protections, right? And sort of, and the norms that are designed to uh, to offer protections to people who are in various positions that are designated as, as not political positions. Um, and, and there's a tension there, you know, that Scott sort of um, referenced it earlier, but right, sort of communicating to the public, this is not the same thing as what we saw during the Trump administration. Um, this is not Biden coming in and saying anybody who ever served at a political level or is a Republican or has any ties to, uh, to Trump is sort of or was hired in the past four years is rooted out. We don't want that to happen, right? That's that's sort of a further erosion of norms, not a restoration of norms. Um, so whenever we think about it that way, the, the sort of the same issue is there. Um, and whenever we think about uh, kind of the bigger questions of, of, as well of how should we expect Biden to approach things like compliance with the Vacancies Act, if we end up with a uh, Republican control of the Senate and they take a very, very obstructionist approach to confirming the cabinet of Biden's choosing, you know, if, if you know, might Biden uh, decide to employ some of the, um, the tricks that Donald Trump has shown he can get away with, uh, even though it's not in keeping with, uh, at a minimum, the spirit uh, of of the the Constitution and, and relevant statutes. So there's a lot that's similar. Um, That said, they actually have nothing to do with one another. Um, So one, as both Scott and Rudy mentioned, um, the actual sort of regulations have not gone into effect. Um, So we're in this period of sort of studying designation and review. Um, So there's nobody who's in sort of a Schedule F position yet uh, that we know of. Furthermore, because uh, the position that ordinarily governs uh, the role that Ellis is in and sort of sit or or, or might be sworn into in, in, in the near future, uh, is this sort of this uh, Defense Intelligence Senior Executive Service? Um, as I mentioned earlier, those are a different set of regulations, um, sort of that are uh, that are created under a different title uh, of the U.S. Code. Um, and so, uh, in one hand, the short answer is um, they've got nothing to do with each other because Schedule F explicitly applies only to positions created under Title V, and that's not what we're talking about here. That said, this category of defense and intelligence positions, both the, the DICES and 
and uh, the disol, there's, there's all these sort of various sort of alphabet soup of designations um, that we can think of. In all of those regulations, the Secretary of Defense is uh, instructed to adopt regulations that are substantially equal to or conform with the OPM designations. And so if we imagine sort of the Schedule F regulation actually taking effect, positions being, uh, being redesignated, and OPM altering its guidance, what we might see is that the series of essentially DOD regulations that govern this position and other similar positions will change either because the regulations will be updated in order, order to conform or because a lot of these regulations actually just directly point to OPM guidance. So even though they aren't technically governed by OPM, um, they say, hey, you know, here's the qualification standards for the SES. Um, you know, they're the same as set by OPM and X guidance. Um, and so anything that, uh, that explicitly references back and adopts the OPM standards, that'll be altered. That said, in terms of the, the immediate candidacy of Ellis, they, they basically just aren't related. And if Joe Biden comes in and wants to get rid of Michael Ellis, what are his options? Yeah, so um, there are a few. Um, and this applies not just to Ellis, um, but sort of to all individuals that occupy this sort of problematic category, um, where they are technically in office, uh, in offices designed uh, to be career offices, but there are, uh, you know, real and reasonable reasons to believe that either they were uh, appointed uh, in contravention of the regulations, uh, of, of borrowing prevention laws, um, or for sort of, or for improper political purposes, that, the, that there's reason to sort of uh, be suspicious about the integrity of the merits qualification process. Um, so one thing you can do is come in and just fire everybody. And you say, okay, um, we're going to give you your procedural protections, which um, they vary, but they, they're things like 30 days written notice, the ability to be represented by counsel. Um, in a lot of cases, there's like a 120-day moratorium where you aren't allowed to fire people uh, right after a new administration takes office uh, or uh, a cabinet secretary or sort of uh, a head of the department is changed. Uh, to sort of prevent this kind of house cleaning. You say, okay, um, we are going to fire you. Um, one of your uh, sort of remedies and, and rights is that you can go to this thing called the, the Merit Service Protection Board, yes? And you can uh, argue your case. And if they determine that you actually were properly put in this position and thus you were improperly removed, um, then you can be reinstated as your as your remedy. And sort of, uh, you know, take your luck and we'll let the, uh, the Merit Protection Board sort it out for us. So that's kind of one option. Um, it comes with a lot of efficiency, the danger of being over-inclusive, and a little bit of sort of um, optics concerns, but wouldn't be uh, sort of absurd or out of the realm of possibilities. Um, the other thing that, uh, that Biden might do is to take a, a more sort of specific investigation-based uh, approach. Um, so ask the inspectors general of the NSA or DOD uh, to specifically investigate the selection process at issue here and other similar processes. So today, uh, the minority ranking members of the SSCI and the SASP, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, both uh, sent a letter to the inspector general of the Department of Defense asking them for to do exactly this. I'm um, saying, hey, we don't think the rules were followed or we have some suspicions. Um, explain to us what the rules are. Resolve these sort of reports of irregularities for us, um, you know, and sort of, sort of answer these specific questions. And oh, by the way, um, we don't think anybody should be sworn into office while these investigations are pending. 
And then if there is a finding, uh, right, that there is irregularities in, pro in the process, you can fire someone. Um, you can reassign them. Uh, so while there are usually protections, civil service protections against outright removal, um, the ability to reassign someone uh, is pretty discretionary, um, pretty close to limitless. Um, you can move someone to any uh, similarly designated position. Uh, this happens a lot, uh, both for uh, sort of ordinary reasons. So um, uh, some agency directors or cabinet secretaries have a really strong preference for mandatory rotation um, and periodic rotation. They like to see their senior executive uh, service, uh, you know, sort of do different tours in different parts of the agency, uh, you know, to prevent groupthink and sort of allow um, uh, that kind of exchange and development of expertise and ideas. You know, it's, it's also sort of a, a long tradition of of essentially using this to maroon people who uh, are entitled to civil service protections but um, aren't very good at their jobs or, or, or otherwise problematic, assign them to a position that uh, they don't want to do um, and doesn't have a lot of substantive authority, um, and then let them decide to quit the government on their own. Um, so we saw the Trump administration uh, sort of use that tactic. It's an oldie but goodie and then sort of a familiar one, again, um, can come with a little bit of an optics issue, but as uh, sort of a, a legal question. Um, there's very little uh, that any individual or sort of um, a career protected uh, individual can do to, to stop it. And, you know, we, we want the federal government to have that kind of flexibility. Um, the other thing we might see related to this specific position is, you know, there's there's sort of this perennial fight with the Hill where uh, Congress always talks about, hey, this job in particular, we know that you say it shouldn't be politicized and uh, it needs to be this career role. We don't really buy it. It's an important administrative position, uh, certainly sort of post-Snowden revelations, um, uh, the ability for Congress to uh, exercise really um, a sort of muscular oversight of this office in particular, um, we see how important that is. Um, and so they, they, you know, every few years and kind of every three or four years, there's these new proposals that come in, in the IAA or the NDAA saying, hey, we're going to make the, um, the NSA General Counsel Senate confirmed. And uh, the executive branch says, no, 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 no. Um, one thing we might see is Congress saying, okay, this time we really mean it. Because the thing we were afraid of all along that you promised us wouldn't happen um, has happened now. And so it, we now have uh, a demonstration that the civil service protections are not, in fact, robust enough to prevent uh, the kind of politicization that we're seeing here. And the only appropriate remedy here is to pass legislation and require and, and sort of elevate this and require it to become a Senate confirmed position, potentially as a sort of part of NSA and Cyber Command separating other status changes that might occur uh, with the NSA. Um, you know, that that's a development that would come with some benefits, but also some real risks, right? These concerns about making roles, uh, you know, sort of that, that you want to distance from political pressure, um, making them political roles, you know, those carry costs. They, they are real costs. And so one of the challenges for, uh, for the Biden administration is how much are they thinking about sort of um, president proofing the executive branch, uh, to use sort of a nonsensical term, right? How much do they want to use their time in office to prevent the ability of future presidents to uh, to abuse uh, 
the, the powers of the office in the way that Trump did, um, something that will require the Biden administration to agree along with Congress to self-constrain, to, to not sort of uh, fully assert its own institutional prerogatives and branch prerogatives, but instead, right, just sort of make common cause with Congress in order to restrain the executive as an institution? Um, or instead, is uh, is it going to go back to sort of the, the way things were before um, and sort of assert those really, um, uh, you know, traditional executive branch positions, um, in part because they want to be able to capitalize on this flexibility? I, I think that's going to be sort of the, the paradox at, at the core of a lot of this. And um, one hint uh, that we can see in the coming days is, one, um, how does the Biden transition respond to developments like, uh, like the announcement regarding Ellis? Um, do they issue uh, statements? Um, you know, what is the, the tone and substance of those statements? Um, and also personnel decisions. Um, who are they hiring um, and sort of indicating their thinking about for really important senior roles? You know, personnel is policy. Um, and that's one place that I think we're going to see uh, a little bit of a hint of, of what kind of path they might be thinking moving forward. So, Scott, if you are the Biden transition, do you look with fear on this uh, executive order or do you say, hey, at the end of the day, these guys are not going to get their act together to do a lot under it. So it will strengthen our hand, not theirs. Well, you know, I really think at this point, the Biden administration needs to be, certainly in regards to the Schedule F executive order, kind of vigilant, um, but still waiting to see where it develops. There are a lot, a lot of questions about how and if it's going to be pursued. Um, again, we don't know what scale it's going to be implemented at. We don't yet have uh, examples of what agencies how agencies are going to implement some of these provisions. And I think you can kind of tell that that's happening because so far we actually haven't seen that much legal challenges against it. We've only seen one lawsuit that I'm aware of by uh, a National Treasury Employees Union challenging the actual executive order itself, but kind of on the grounds that the president acted ultra vires in using some of these statutory authorities uh, in a way that would require a court to, to interpret those authorities somewhat narrowly. I think it's probably a, a bit of an uphill battle on their statutory arguments. But even though everybody sees these big potential negative consequences, nobody's quite jumped into the fray yet to say, okay, we're going to start legally challenging them because we just don't know how they're going to be implemented. Judging from how effectively the Biden administration has prepared itself for a whole wave of post-election, I should say the Biden campaign, the whole wave of post-election litigation, they've got huge teams of lawyers with a lot of experience and a lot of people who are relatively recently in government themselves. I, I suspect that they are probably beginning to pull people together and begin looking at this to say, how big a problem is this going to be and anticipating sorts of responses and perhaps contingencies. But you know, my, I'm not even sure we really have a, enough of an idea of how the Trump administration is going to approach uh, certainly the Schedule F issue to actually say, here's 100% are going to be our strategy moving forward. So they're just going to have to be in a little bit of a wait and see posture while gathering the resources, getting things together uh, and preparing to move relatively quickly. The one thing they are going to have to do, and I imagine that, again, with the number of former government employees that are, that are working for the Biden administration, Biden transition, is to provide quickly, if something does happen, a clear signal to both current federal employees and those who may be individually affected by some of these personnel actions that the Biden administration has their back, that they care about the 
independence and the durability of the civil service, that even though I think everyone agrees that some there are reforms that aren't maybe warranted in different parts of the civil service, that the core ethic of having an independent and politically neutral civil service remains important, and that the Biden administration is committed to strengthening that norm and restoring it to the extent it's damaged by the Trump administration on its way out of office. So hopefully that messaging is getting ready. The question then just remains, you know, how are we actually going to do that and accomplish that? And that's going to depend on what exactly the Trump administration does. Yeah. So add this to a long list of issues that the Biden team is going to need to be focused on when they begin governing on day one. It is very much the case that personnel is policy, as Susan referenced. And I know that that's an overused statement, but it's a good one. And it is true. In addition to monitoring the implementation of the Schedule F executive order, remember, they have a lot of other personnel issues to have to grapple with, right? There are the vacancies, not just at the political level, but also at the career level throughout the federal government in a variety of key offices that are going to be playing important roles in furthering a Biden agenda, whether it's at the State Department, EPA, HHS, Interior, you know, you name it, they're going to need to focus on rebuilding the the personnel within some of those agencies. Typically in a transition, you have the outgoing administration working hand in glove with the incoming administration on identifying the acting officials who may need to serve for a period of time uh, while Biden's nominees are evaluated and confirmed by the Senate. Sometimes you have political appointees from the outgoing administration holding over into the incoming administration uh, when they uh, occupy certain key roles, particularly those that have to deal uh, have to do with national security responsibilities. I, I'm not sure any of that is going to happen, frankly, right now. You also, as as folks remember, have some issues around some key roles that impact accountability and oversight within the executive branch. There are a number of IG inspector general positions where you have nominees pending before the before the Senate. One of them is a Nunes staffer, Congressman Nunes, that one of his staffers has been nominated to be the the new inspector general of the intelligence community and one of the things that Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, and, uh, and uh, has said repeatedly is that he wants to shore up trust in government. He wants to defend expertise and processes that allow career officials, experts, scientists, researchers to contribute to federal policy. And in order to do that, these are all the kinds of issues that, that he's going to need to address and his people are going to need to prioritize. And I, and I have faith and trust that they will prioritize it. By any measure, they are preparing to have more people appointed on day one than any transition and administration, at least in modern history, because they recognize the scope of the problem. While past administrations have not wanted to expend political capital on personnel issues like this, I am hopeful that President Biden will be willing to do that. And in prioritizing personnel, I think that you will uh, hopefully see them also prioritizing the rule of law, accountability, and transparency issues that have energized 
Democrats and good government officials these past four years, because I think that the interests that are furthered by having good personnel processes and and people in place are not uh, dissimilar from the same interests that are furthered by those rule of law reforms. So I am I am fully anticipating that they uh, focus uh, and grapple with these issues, even if it's going to present a significant challenge for them. We're going to leave it there. Susan Hennessy, Scott Anderson, Rudy Merbani, thank you all so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our merch is available at the Lawfare store, and you should promote us on Twitter, on Facebook, on whatever social media you use. Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.